Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I am Will Braun, your host for today. Today we'll be speaking to Dr. Paul Geltner. Dr. Geltner has been the Director of Psychoanalytic Education at the Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy Study Center and has taught at the Northern Rockies Psychoanalytic Institute, the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, and the Colorado Center for Modern Psychoanalysis. He's in private practice in New York City, working with individuals and couples, He specializes in individual and group supervision with psychoanalysts and psychoanalytic psychotherapists. He also consults by phone and is in the process of forming a supervision group via video conferencing. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Geltner about his book, Emotional Communication, Countertransference Analysis, and the Use of Feeling in Psychoanalytic Technique. It was published by Routledge in 2013. Welcome, Dr. Geltner. Hello. Hi. Thank you for speaking with us. My pleasure. So the first question we usually ask is, what led you to write this book? Uh, Well, uh, there were a number of different reasons. Um, The main one is is that my own background is in a modern analytic tradition called modern psychoanalysis. And that tradition uh, used a very different approach to counter-transference and to psychoanalytic technique than many of the traditional traditions, and it's been around since the 50s, and it grew up for all kinds of uh, political and cultural reasons in almost complete isolation from all the other analytic orientations. And starting in the 80s, many of the other orientations started moving in the direction of modern psychoanalysis, and modern psychoanalysis also drew on some minority traditions within the classical tradition. And basically, I feel like there's been a gap between these two groups. Well, basically, the moderns and everybody else. And I really wanted to bridge that. In addition to that, I wanted to incorporate a lot of uh, insights and observations that have come from many groups of psychoanalysis uh, that really hadn't been integrated into the modern tradition and basically opened the field up in that way to, to bring a lot of observations together in what, was I ho- what I hope is a, uh, a unified way of looking at the phenomena of how feelings can be understood and used within the psychoanalytic relationship. Mm. You know, I was really excited when Tracy asked me to do this interview because I was trained at the New York Psychoanalytic, which seems to be in many ways a, a, you know, almost the direct opposite or a very different point of view than, than a modern approach. Uh, when we were trained, I mean, I trained in the 2000s, so it's pretty, I guess, modern in that sense. But, you know, the New York Psychoanalytic has such a history of seeing countertransference, um, you know, as something that the analyst really needs to go to analysis to deal with, your, your mm-hmm. countertransference. Or um, if you look at it in a more, I, I guess, contemporary way through an ego-psychological approach, it really was um, a, a unitary thing. It was the analyst's feelings, and that's pretty much as far as we got when we were talking mm-hmm. about it. But your book really goes into countertransference. I think I've never read a book that was more um, rich and really went into the the subject of countertransference like your book did. Um, before we go into countertransference, can you, at least for the listeners who are not familiar um, with kind of modern psychoanalytic technique – can you give just a general, I don't know, is that possible to give a general overview of what modern psychoanalysis is? You know, I can do that. I'd like to throw in one historical note since you mentioned New York psychoanalytic. Sure. Uh, Spotnitz actually did his original training. Spotnitz, Simon Spotnitz was the founder of modern psychoanalysis, and he did his training at New York psychoanalytic. And eventually uh, they broke with him and he broke with them, which was one of the reasons there's been so much isolation. Mm. But it is interesting that we're talking together. We're overcoming a breach that started <laughs> in the 50s. <laughs> okay. I, I think this is great. 
Yeah. So uh, that's wonderful. Now, what I'd say what modern psychoanalysis really contributed was um, was really two different things. One of them was a more systematic use of countertransference, which in this case was understood as a communication from the patient to the analyst. Now, Spotnitz wasn't the only one who came up with this idea. It actually came up simultaneously uh, with Winnicott, with Annie Reich, and um, perhaps in the most detailed form with Heinrich Racker in Argentina. They all came up with this idea in the late 40s, almost simultaneously. But what Spotnitz did was really systematize it and make it a very important um, epistemological tool, which is to say a way of understanding the patient, and took it away from the idea that it was only the analyst's idiosyncratic problem and viewed as a, as, a, as a form of communication from the patient to the analyst and as a way of understanding the patient. And then the other thing that Spotnitz did was integrate using feelings as a function of, of analytic technique to actually work with the patient and to relate to the patient in ways that move the analytic process forward and departed from the idea that interpretation was the only legitimate psychoanalytic tool. Mm-hmm. So his initial work focused on uh, mostly on the, the role of aggression in psychopathology and then later work began to focus more on the use of all feelings and the role of all feelings in both causing people's problems and helping them in analysis. And what my work in particular was doing was trying to move that even further, to move beyond the focus just on aggression, which I think is extremely important, but also look at the role of all feelings in human development. And this isn't unique to me, but that's sort of what I was trying to push in this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I really like it. You begin the book uh, with sort of biological origins, kind of the, the evolutionary origins of mm-hmm. what you call objective countertransference. Mm-hmm. And, and you introduce the, the concept of induction. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you tell our listeners more about that? Yeah, induction is really the idea that when one person has a feeling that one of its roles, biologically and developmentally, is to stimulate a feeling in another person. And that all feelings are, in a sense, one could use the contemporary term relational. All feelings are both an expression of somebody's own personal experience, but they're also, uh, they also have an effect on other people's experience by creating or stimulating, or the word that I prefer is inducing a feeling in somebody else. So this is a whole dimension of communication that really predated language evolutionarily and developmentally, and then eventually ends up becoming entwined with language that's really a separate mode of communication altogether. Mm-hmm. You know, a mode of communication in which one person's feelings stimulate feelings in somebody else and gives you real information about what that person is feeling. You make a very good argument for this. I'm also, I'm involved in many things, one of which is a Lacan study group. And it Mm -hmm. seems like Lacan is almost on the opposite end of the spectrum where, um, he, he really prefaces language and he puts language, uh, almost only listens to language. But you're really saying, um, there's so much more than the words that a patient speaks to us. So much more. Yeah. 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 So in the argument you make, I really, you know, I have a dog and I'll take him to the dog park and watching dogs interact. I mean, (laughs) you can't deny the fact that there is a communication going on, that dogs pick up cues from each other. uh, (laughs) They're scared of certain dogs. There is an emotional communication uh, that not only predates language for humans, but but it's really in the animal world. Oh, very much, very much. And it's in the animal world, and it's how infants and, uh, and preverbal infants and parents communicate is through feelings. Yeah. The parents, of course, are using words, but the infants, of course, are not. And yet the parents know what's going on with the infant to some extent. Mm-hmm. And the whole issue of dogs is just astonishing. All the research that's coming out on dogs, yeah, yeah, the yeah. way... Yeah, the way dogs and humans communicate on an emotional level, it's just an astonishing thing. It is. Um, Mm -hmm. You discuss objective countertransference as distinct from subjective countertransference. And in in the book, you use the analogy of a piano. 
Mm -hmm. I I love this quote. I'm going to read it because I think this is great. Uh, Page 22, each piano has a distinctive tone and a distinctive range, not to mention a few out of tune strings and broken keys. So the patient's melody won't sound the same way with every analyst. But when the analyst is basically attuned to the patient, the setup is always the same. The patient hits the notes, the analyst makes the sounds, and together they make the music of the objective countertransference. I, I, I've never heard that put that way. I also was a pianist. That was my first degree. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> so, a degree in music. But, um, so I loved that reference. Um, but can you speak about uh, objective countertransference, sort of what is going on between patient and analyst, and, and, and the difference between that and what one would call subjective countertransference? Okay. Well, uh, the objective countertransference uh, is the whole set of feelings that the analyst experiences that are really consistent with the history and the story of the patient's life. So that when the analyst takes and looks at their feelings and compares them to the story of the patient's life as the patient has recounted it, they begin to see analogies, parallels, and similarities. Now, there's all different ways that these analogies and and parallels can be manifest. But as long as the analyst's feelings are in some way representative of either feelings that the patient themselves has had or feelings that other people have had toward the patient, then I would call that objective. The subjective feelings are those which have absolutely no correspondence to anything in the patient's life that would be idiosyncratic um, emotional reactions to the patient. But I would have to say that in contrast with the traditional position and the, you know, the very strong classical position that would argue that all feelings that the analyst has are idiosyncratic, I think that the purely idiosyncratic reactions to other people are really a very small portion of what the analyst experiences. But if the analyst sits back, takes a basically receptive position in listening to the patient, that many of the patient, many of the feelings that the analyst has actually have a very strong parallel to the patient uh, and are an expression of how the patient is repeating their life story with the analyst and inducing feelings that they actually can't put into words. So it's the consistency between the analyst's feelings and aspects of the patient that makes it objective countertransference. Mm-hmm. I, I thought the point was radical. I mean, like maybe that's me reading it from a New York psychoanalytic point of view. I, I really loved that point that you start with the assumption that the communication received from the patient is is the patient's, or, or I should say, not even. I should back up and say that you start with the assumption that the feeling that the analyst has, you should assume first that it's coming from the patient and and sort of ask yourself, does this connect in some way or another to the content of the session, the history of the patient, before just assuming that this is your own idiosyncratic um, sort of response, which I I think, you know, in many ways, that's how I was taught that this is is your thing. But so I found that really radical and, and kind of freeing. Uh, to mm-hmm. be able to kind of sit back and actually open up even more with patients and listen to them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's I'm great. That's great. I'm glad that that had that effect for you. Because yeah. I really find that that really exactly, it frees the analyst, and it actually keeps the analyst from becoming self-absorbed. It helps the analyst to stay focused on the patient instead of constantly saying, what is it about me that's making me feel this feeling? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a well-intended way of protecting the patient from the analyst subjectivity, but it has the paradoxical effect of removing the analyst from focusing on the patient's life and on the patient on the patient's experience. Hmm. So, I, so that's why I always encourage people to try to really listen to the patient, have their feeling, and then say, "How does that fit into the patient's life?" You know, how can I understand that in terms of his or her life story? Absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, it, it's almost amazing that we're talking about this in 2015, that this is something that uh, it just seems so um, just logical that, that this is still a conversation we're having now. It should have been, I, I guess, understood back in the 50s, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Joe. Well, I do, I do want to. I just want to add. There were people. There were other people who were doing this in the fifties, but they weren't doing it quite as systematically. What, what Racker was doing was very, very much in this um, in this line, and and Racker really laid out the basic outlines of Cousinger transference analysis. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Paula Hyman's contribution can't be neglected, but but these were single articles. Um, they didn't form. They didn't attempt to do a whole phenomenology, a whole catalog of how this uh, of how this arises. Mm-hmm. And that was another one of my motivations in doing the book, that I wanted to draw as big a picture of what the phenomena of how this actually functions is as possible. Mm-hmm. Now it's not complete; it's nowhere near complete, but it's as, as complete as I could see it at this moment in time. Well, I would say it's the most complete uh, book on countertransference I've ever come across. <laughs> so it's really, really dense and amazing. I mean, it was almost like every sentence uh, mattered. This is an impossible book to skim. Like mm-hmm. every every sentence is really packed with with uh, really good stuff. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, talking about um, the people that have been really working in the countertransference field, where would you see Klein in in sort of this field of people working in this area? Well, that's an interesting question. At least as I understand it, Klein herself did not work in this field, but the Kleinians did. Almost everyone who followed her work afterward used a very similar methodology to the countertransference analysis that I'm doing. I think that the only difference, you know, the only difference really with the Kleinians is that I don't think they worked to compare what they were feeling to what's going on in the patient's life. That the you know the problem with looking at countertransference is it does open the the door to the analyst thinking that whatever they're feeling is something about the patient, sure. as opposed to looking at how does what I feel fit in what the patient is saying, how is it parallel? And the analyst doesn't always know that right away. In fact, they often don't know it for a long time what the correspondences are. Some of the feelings that you have. You'll see the correspondences with the patient's life immediately. The patient's almost never aware of it, but that's your job. Others take years to, to come up. My impression is with the Kleinians, there's more of a, more of a sense to um, understand what they're feeling more directly in terms of theory as opposed to how it compares to the patient's life. But that said, uh, I, I think the Kleinian tradition on countertransference is very rich. Mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. a difference in focus. Sure. I, mm-hmm. I also found that um, I, I think your book really expands countertransference. So the clients focus a lot on projective identification, uh, mm-hmm. and you really, you really almost uh, taxonomize that as one category of yeah. countertransference, right? So, and and you kind of blow it up into very different categories of countertransference. Before we move to the kind of the meat of your book uh, that really describes the countertransference, you kind of bring the reader uh, through a discussion of modes of relating before we even mm-hmm. get to countertransference. Can you discuss the types of modes of relating uh, and the difference between uh, differentiated and undifferentiated modes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, what I uh, what I describe as um, modes of relating is really where um, how the patient is relating in terms of whether or not they're experiencing other people as being separate, separate and differentiated, or similar and the same, which is narcissistic. So it's really integrated with the whole concept of separation individuation. The difference is, is that I think people relate in differentiated ways, meaning that they experience the other person as being separate throughout their lives from the beginning, and they also experience people as being the same and similar throughout their lives from the beginning. And there's some influence from Kohat here on the idea that the, the whole narcissistic development, what he later called self-object development, happens throughout your life. It's not something that's simply outgrown in the way that some of the developmental ego psychologists argue. And that basically at any given moment, people may be relating to another person in, uh, in a way that's more separate or in a way that's more the same. And that that very much affects how the other person will experience them. So that these experiences of bonding and feeling that you're like somebody are reflective of somebody relating in a way 
that is narcissistic with, uh, with no pathological connotation there, purely descriptive, that they are relating in a way that they experience you as being the same as them or similar or twins, and you have a corresponding feeling in your reaction to them in the countertransference. So the way these different relational modes affect how we experience other people in a global way. You said no pathological um, connotation. You know, when I was reading the book, I was wondering if there was an underlying sort of developmental line, if one was more early or late, or, or do you think in that way? I actually don't think that way. That's a little bit different from a lot of uh, the way a lot of other people think. I think that there are moments of differentiated relatedness from the beginning that correspond to the early, uh, the infant's early experience of things being either me or not me, and that there's elements of symbiosis, merger, and other things that I would call narcissistic development from the beginning, and that they're basically intertwined. I think eventually, over time, the ability to experience somebody else as being separate, differentiated, and not a part of yourself is a crucial developmental accomplishment, sort of what the, um, you know, what the ego psychologists call separation individuation and mm-hmm. what the relationalists would call full intersubjectivity. But I think that nevertheless, there's still, uh, there's still room for relating on, a, on the basis of sameness throughout life, and that that has to be honored and valued in the treatment, Mm -hmm. that one isn't simply trying to create differentiation, Mm -hmm. that one, and that different people have different combinations of how they like to relate and how they're most comfortable relating. Sure. I would imagine um, that any given person has, I don't know, a style, a style of relating, and that that might override... um, sort of their personality or kind of be the the hallmark of their personality. But in each individual session with each individual person, uh, they really go in and out of modes, don't they? Very much so. And, and, And different modes simultaneously. Some may be unconscious and some may be conscious. So it becomes a very complicated little task to try to, to, uh, determine, what some, how somebody is experiencing you on a conscious level and how they're experiencing you on an unconscious level and then trying to relate to both elements. I think what I, I really left your book with was a, an enormous amount of appreciation for how much time, thought, and supervision uh, this way of working takes because it's a tremendous amount of work on the part of the analyst. Mm-hmm. That is true. That is true. Although I have to say that the interesting thing about it is that as soon as somebody starts, as soon as an analyst uh, starts talking about their case with somebody else, if you start looking from this perspective, it starts unfolding immediately. Hmm. You don't actually have to dig very far. Once you're thinking about how the patient is experiencing you, and once you're thinking about what's being repeated, and once you start thinking about how is what I'm feeling related to what's going on in the patient's life, there are a lot of moving parts, but many of them come up and become visible very, very quickly. It's rather astonishing to me how quickly it unfolds. Mm-hmm. There, are things, there, are, there are configurations and transferences and issues that can take a long, long time to figure out, but many of them are almost immediately obvious on the surface once you start looking from this perspective. Mm. So you move from, uh, in the book, you move from modes of relating uh, to really a chapter on each type of countertransference. And, and each, each chapter you have has beautiful examples. Um, and, and it's interesting, again, from someone who, I don't know, thinks of or was taught or, or thought of countertransference in kind of a unitary way. You break down each one of these types of countertransference uh, inductions and, and all their different uh, arrays of, of being manifest in the session with the analyst. It's, it's, it's amazing. It, you can see, um, you can see every one of the, this book was very evocative for me. Like when I was reading the book, uh, it actually helped me listen to patients very differently. So I thank you for that. Oh, can you, my speak, pleasure. this, uh, um, the concept of congruence and incongruence, um, mm-hmm which is just a little bit different um, 
then I, I can't remember if it was rack or it was a, it was a paper I read a long time ago in training, whether the patient is feeling the same thing you're, you're doing. That's not really congruence or incongruence, but it's more about, um, what the patient is saying and what the patient is inducing in you. Is that correct? Right, right. I say that the countertransference is congruent with the patient's material. I call it the material of the content of the session. When the analyst can see a clear analogy between what they're feeling and what the patient is saying. So, for instance, the patient is saying that their father got extremely angry at them, and the analyst is finding that they're feeling extremely angry at the patient. Now, they may be angry about two different things entirely. They probably are. The analyst is upset that the patient came in and, you know, didn't wipe their boots and is, you know, tra- trailing ice all over their office. And the father is angry because the patient didn't choose the career that the father wanted the patient to choose. So the content, you know, the details are different. But what's significant at that moment, from my point of view, is that the analyst is feeling the same feeling as the patient's father. So when you have that, the material that tells you what the countertransference may mean, that's congruence. Mm-hmm. Now, incongruence is when the analyst is having a feeling and they can't find any um, basis for it in the material at that moment. And that's much more complicated because from my perspective, I'm going to assume that eventually the material will come out, but I don't know what it is yet because... The patient is very defended. There's nothing within their consciousness that gives you any sense of what it means. But it's a more complicated situation for the analyst to maintain because that's the situation where the analyst is likely to say, well, I don't see anything in the patient's material. This must be me. And yet I find that if you wait long enough, you find that some of the patient's deepest problems are expressed through these incongruent inductions. Where the, pay, where the analyst simply doesn't know for a long time why it is that they are bored with the patient, seduced by the patient, um, intrigued by the patient, uh, furious with the patient, critical. When there's nothing in the material that suggests why, you usually end up finding that other people are experiencing that as well. And you can't quite trace it right away. It can take a long time, but eventually the pattern emerges. So eventually, you're looking for all countertransference to become congruent. Hmm. So in the book, you distinguish between four you know, major um, classifications of countertransference. You talk about a narcissistic countertransference, object countertransference, uh, projective identification, and anaclytic countertransference. Uh, could you give the listeners an overview? Again, to me, I, I just mm-hmm. was taught countertransference. <laughs> but right. Here we have four major categories, and within those categories, you give subcategories and examples. But could you give kind of a major uh, or a general overview of these four types of countertransferences? Sure. The, the narcissistic countertransferences are those in which the analyst has a feeling that's the same as what the patient themselves is feeling, either the same as or it's analogous to or it's similar to. So, for instance, the patient is feeling lost and helpless in their life and they can't figure out what to do. The analyst might start feeling lost and helpless as an analyst and they can't figure out what to do with the patient. They're both having the same kind of feeling. That would be a narcissistic kind of a transference, counter-transference and transference. In the object... Okay, so the, uh, the narcissistic is an undifferentiated um, mode in which they're both feeling the same way. Mm-hmm. In the object transference, they're having different feelings from each other. The patient is feeling helpless and the analyst is feeling angry. Or the patient is feeling um, like they're getting cheated and the analyst is feeling like the patient isn't paying enough or something like that. And the feelings are really very, very different. And they are replaying a differentiated relationship from the patient's life. The analyst's feelings are not an expression of what the patient is feeling, but what somebody else in the patient's life is feeling. And the crucial thing is, is that it's repeating an experience that was pathogenic, that was traumatic, that was bad for the patient. So that's the object. Anaclytic countertransference is like object countertransference, a differentiated mode. The analyst and the patient have different feelings. The difference is, is that in anaclytic uh, countertransference, 
the patient is reliving their dependency needs in relationship to the analyst, and the analyst has the feelings to meet them in a nurturing or maturational way. So it's the opposite of object countertransference in that instead of repeating an experience that was pathogenic, it's creating a new experience that's maturational and nurturing and generally loving. Mm-hmm. And finally, the uh, projective identification is more or less an undifferentiated mode. But the characteristic of projective identification is that the patient has feelings about themselves that they can't tolerate. They induce the opposite feelings in the analyst. So, for instance, if the patient can't tolerate feeling powerful, they themselves experience feelings of being powerless and they induce feelings of being very powerful in the analyst. There's always a polar opposition in projective identification. So the patient experiences the analyst consciously as being differentiated, but in fact it's a part of themselves that is really staying in the analyst and this experience is being segregated. And the difference with projective identification than the other three is the projective identification, as I understand it, is always a defensive mode. It's not a more or less normal mode of relatedness. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the least frequent. It sounds mode. like it's, it, it's easy to confuse sort of the idea of projective identification and, and the object countertransference. Can, can you parse that apart just a bit? Well, the, 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 the main difference is that in projective identification, the patient and the analyst really have opposite feelings. They're polar oppositions. They're not just different. And there tends to be an intensity about projective identification and an instability about projective identification that's different than the object. In projective identification, there's much more of a tendency for the analyst to sort of lose control or really lose track of what's going on. Mm. That can happen with the object too, but there's just a funny different quality about it. And it is difficult to explain in in a few sentences, but I think if you look at the issue of whether or not it's the polar opposite, is one person very weak and the other person strong? Mm-hmm. Is one fearful and the other one courageous? If, you know, there's a crisp opposition there as opposed to just being different. Sure, you use the term defense um, or defensive, but I also notice you don't use the terms like um, it's, it's a projection. Mm-hmm. Do you see that as, is that a pejorative term or? No, I, I don't see it as pejorative. It's just that part of the problems in psychoanalysis is that everyone uses these terms slightly differently. Mm. So unless I had a real clear meaning that I wanted to do, that I wanted to convey, I don't like to use terms with, a, you know, terms that are just more common. The, the issue with projection is that it's not necessarily interpersonal. When somebody projects a feeling on somebody else, the other person doesn't necessarily feel that feeling, whereas when it's projectively identified, they do, they do experience that feeling. Mm-hmm. It's a more deeply interpersonal process. You know, one of the things uh, about your book that I really appreciated it were all the clinical examples or um, not just clinical examples, but examples of times when um, these inductions can happen. You know, when I think of a narcissistic countertransference, I think of, you know, the obvious, like the patient's upset and, and you feel upset, like they've lost a loved one and you're upset for them as well. And there's this congruence and it seems pretty straightforward and simple. But you, you give an example on page 86 that I loved because, um, I wouldn't on the surface have considered this to be a narcissistic countertransference, but you really, this is kind of the depth in which you go, um, uh, in talking about uh, these countertransferences, you say the analyst may lose sight of the patient altogether and become preoccupied with any number of self-focused topics, his own personal problems, his bodily sensations, his finances, his chores, or what he, what he's going to have for lunch. Now this happens, you know, frequently, sometimes Mm -hmm. your your mind will drift or you'll think about something else in the session. Um, 
His own feelings become the conscious focus of his, of his experience of the patient. The patient feels secondary in his attention and may seem to disappear altogether as the analyst seems to be self-absorbed. And, and so one might say, well, that's not a countertransference at all. That's, a pa- that's an analyst not paying att- attention to his patient. But you really link it uh, to what's going on in the session. I loved this. You said the sort of countertransference often arises at times when the patient is talking without any parent, apparent awareness that the analyst is in the room, rattling on, completely self-absorbed and oblivious to the analyst's presence, and that that is being mirrored in the analyst by the analyst completely you know, disregarding mm-hmm. the patient. I thought that was, again, another really great example of, of how deep one can go and think about what's happening in the room. It's not just the the analyst. Well, I guess it could be that the analyst is bored, but the assumption is you start with the assumption that this has something to do with the patient. Yeah. 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 So can you, the two counter transferences that seemed uh, to me, and I, you know, I hate to put some sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of line of hierarchy that seemed the most important uh, to a, a modern perspective. There seemed to me when I read your book something very important about the the narcissistic countertransference and the use of it, that, that this seemed to be a very important technical um, or technique that a modern analyst can use. And also the anaclytic countertransference, um, seemed to be remarkably important as well. I, I, you know, that, that might just be my read, but these two really, uh, struck me as being, um, of huge importance for curative reasons, uh, and just establishing, uh, I don't know how to say it other than like a, a positive rapport. Um, mm-hmm. can you say more like, uh, Oh, I would, I would agree. From my point of view, those are the most important um, configurations of transference and countertransference. And, and, and there's a little difference in my emphasis in this than some of the more traditional modern analysts, or the classical modern analysts, if you will. I think that in both the narcissistic and in the um, anaclytic, the patient is often re-experiencing maturation needs that were missing in their development and that these needs are actually met within the context of these two transference and countertransference configurations. There was probably more emphasis, well there was definitely more emphasis in, you know, in Spotnitz's work and another modern analyst's work, um, experiencing aggression toward the analyst and reversing patterns of self-attack. And I think that's extremely important, uh, but I also think that the more um, everyday experiences of having a narcissistic, a positive narcissistic relationship and being cared for and nurtured by the analyst are also extremely important. Mm-hmm. I would say that those are the kinds of experiences that get most of the people where they want to go most of the way in analysis. It's very rarely complete that they're very, very important. You really make the distinction um, between kind of, you know, conscious communication, like I'm speaking to the patient, uh, mm-hmm. some sort of interpretation, like, you know, you notice every time you do this, you do that, mm-hmm. or you seem mm-hmm. to date the same kind of men. But you're really talking about um, an emotional communication that is mutative, that is curative from the analyst that really goes beyond the words. Right. Right. That's the main focus of my technique, that the feelings themselves are curative. And sometimes the words are very important, and sometimes the words are used to clarify and emphasize the feelings, but that with many patients, the feelings themselves are what cures, mm-hmm. in contrast to um, you know insight and interpretation, which isn't to say that I don't think those can be very curative, but they have received far more attention in the mainstream of psychoanalysis than than the feelings. But it almost seems that they only go so far, Mm -hmm. that words and understanding um, only go so far, but there's something about the the emotional communication that really gets at something deeper, do I dare say? Well, you know what? I want to say that. (laughs) My personal experience as a patient was very much that, And my personal experience as an analyst with most patients is very much that. That said, 
Um, certainly, there are some patients for whom the words are very important. Okay. And so I really don't want my um, technique to to be viewed as in opposition to um, interpretation for the patients that are really, really helped by interpretation when it works. I think it's an incredibly valuable tool. But the feeling that I have is often that the feelings are more important. But, but, but I have to say there are exceptions, you know. There are patients who really don't get as far as they need to get with just feelings and just emotional communications. It's just that that's not what my book is about. Sure. No, yeah. I think this is such an important um, aspect of analytic work that this is, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we've gone through however many, a hundred years of uh, ego psychology in many ways and, and interpreting to the patient what we think is going on. And I think this field of, of emotional communication um, it, it maybe is is the next thing that we really need to focus on. So mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate it. What, reading your book um, really made me, it stirred my desire uh, to want to be in supervision with you, <laughs> because oh, well, it's only nice. <laughs> I'd be honored. This is uh, it, it. Really is. It's it. There's something about um, when you read uh, someone else's technique, um, you can't just get it from a book. And no. I feel like you really need to to take patient material and and work mm-hmm. with this in supervision and think about it because I think one of the one of the um, one of the things we can fall into is, is to kind of read a technique like this and say, oh, yeah, we do that anyway. That's We do that all the time. But but mm-hmm. we really don't. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a, what you're talking about is something very, um, very unique, very specific, um, very nuanced. Mm-hmm. And being yeah. able to, to differentiate between these different um, modes of relating – different transferences and counter-transferences, and then the work happens, right? The analyst actually has to think, uh, mm-hmm. or through trial and error, uh, mm-hmm. figure out what mode of responding is going to speak to the patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something about supervision that's so interesting. Now, I'm still in supervision with uh, Stanley Hayden, who I've been in supervision with for decades now. And as much as I've written about this and as often as I've discussed it and as often as I do it in supervision, it often isn't until I've talked about my cases that I can figure out what's going on. There's something about talking to another person, just as there is an analysis, that changes your whole ability to work with this material. You know, analysis was really a talking cure and supervision is a talking training. You know, when you talk to another person, Patterns emerge that simply aren't there when you're in your when you're in your mind, you know. Well, it's another mode of communication as well. Exactly. Like exactly. The mode of communication is so powerful. So, from a modern perspective, um, do you make use of the idea of of a parallel process in the supervision process? Well, the parallel process are really situations. Uh, yeah, that's one subtype of um, of supervisory induction, you know. And that can happen in any of the modes. But there are many different modes that, that happen in supervision. For instance, sometimes the supervisor will pick up a feeling that the, that the analyst simply isn't aware of, that they're as unconscious of as the patient is, mm-hmm. or they will feel a slightly different induction uh, secondarily through the analyst, and then they'll be able to help the analyst in that way. And often the role of supervision is is... I'm going to say just, but it's a big just, to help the analyst feel comfortable knowing that their feelings are related to what the patient is saying, that the process is on track, that everything is really going as it should, but that doesn't mean that the feelings are pleasant, and help the analyst through their confusion and their discomfort with whatever they're feeling. In, uh, supervision from a modern perspective sounds very um, generative. It sounds very giving. And, and I was talking to uh, your colleague, Tracy Morgan, about this a while mm-hmm. ago. And she was saying, you know, part of the role of the supervisor is to help the analyst survive the analysis. Yes. And mm-hmm. I, I thought that was such a beautiful idea. It's not to criticize the analyst. No, it's not to no. say what you're doing wrong or here are some counter-transferences you should go see your analyst about. It really is helping you survive uh, the analysis. Yeah. yeah, 
is giving you the emotional support, the intellectual support, the, the existential support you need to experience all the feelings that the patient wants you and needs you to experience and for you to be able to do that and come out standing, live to tell the tale, and help the patient get through it as well. Right, and, and, and criticism has no role in it, as far as I'm concerned. It's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Who, who would not want to be in supervision with the modern? I mean, it's, it's a great <laughs> idea. Exactly. I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Kohut comes to mind when we speak about this, and and mm-hmm. how much? Um, I don't really, I don't know that much about Spotnitz. Were they in communication? Did they influence each other's thinking? Because. Um, Kohut really starts, from my sense when I was reading your book, especially uh, the anaclytic countertransference and the anaclytic mode of communicating from the analyst. It seemed to me that that it comes from a sense of deficit or lack in the patient, something that you call um, an unmet maturational need. Mm-hmm. How, how similar to this is, is this to like a Kohutian idea? Well, you see, I would say that they're probably 75% overlap that the language is different, that they come from slightly different traditions, but only slightly, and that there's a tremendous amount of overlap. The real difference is around experiences of aggression. The modern analyst would say that if the patient is, if the analyst is having aggressive feelings toward the patient, those two are repetitions from the patient's life. So that if the analyst is hating the patient, it's probably because somebody in the patient's life hated them, and that's being repeated in the transference. That is not something that you see in self-psychology. There is a strong sense in self-psychology that the analyst's feelings are just the analyst's feelings, and that the only maturational feelings, the only feelings that are really useful for the patient, are in the sympathetic, empathic realm. And that's a huge difference. I see it as less of a difference than most self-psychologists do, and I really see a tremendous overlap. Uh, but I don't think there's too many self-psychologists that would agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know? well, so I guess the role of, of the cure, or the way that a modern would conceptualize cure, um, would it be, in some ways it sounds like a corrective emotional experience. Absolutely. Okay. In Absolutely. Some ways With no hesitation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. So it's like you're providing something new for the patient. Yes. Something you're providing missed. something new. Right. 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 And yeah. one more similarity with self-psychology, you know, at least in Kohut, I don't know as much about the later self-psychologists, the, the patient's disappointment in the analyst's ability to provide them with a perfect experience is a huge part of the cure. And that's the same in modern psychoanalysis. Hmm. Both of them are willing to accept the patient's aggression. The modern analyst tends to see a wider scope of aggression in terms of how they feel about the patient and then also what they will communicate to the patient. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, uh, it goes back to Freud, like it is a cure through love. It is a cure through love, absolutely. It's yeah, really yeah. interesting. Uh, what, the other thing that that came to mind as well was Fonagy and the the idea of mentalization. And mm-hmm. you know, I've wrestled with this in my own practice. I see children and adolescents, uh, in addition to adults, and a lot of times, um, sometimes it feels enough for the analyst uh, to just experience uh, the feeling towards the patient that the patient needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other times it feels like that, that experience needs to be communicated. Uh, and maybe, maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but how, how do you see, cause sometimes that feels mutative where the, where I don't have to communicate a thing, to mm-hmm. each, especially yeah. the child, um, children come to mind for some reason in this experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, you're, I, I agree with you completely. It's amazing, but you often don't have to do anything with children except have the experience and tolerate it. You know, one of the most, uh, mutative things I've found with children is if you can get their parents to think of them differently, the child's behavior changes. It's not that mm-hmm. the, the parents actually change their behavior, but mm-hmm. they just see the child, and that is so transformative. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree completely. Absolutely. And occasionally you do have to communicate things directly, but the amount that takes place 
when you process your feelings and when you can shift your feelings and when you can accept your feelings, it's life changing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much in this book, uh, but I, I, before we leave, I, I definitely want you to, um, to talk about uh, the two types of ego that the analyst can speak to, which, which threw me back to Freud's papers on technique. Um, mm-hmm. But th- you call one the reasonable ego and one the afflicted ego. And, and can you talk about the importance of the two and, and how an analyst might speak or reach either one? Oh, sure. Yeah. Now, the reasonable ego is the part that has been um, written about primarily in psychoanalysis. It's the healthy part of the mind. It's the part of the mind that is the most in touch with uh, current contemporary reality, you know, that recognizes the present to the extent that the person can accept the present. It's the observing ego. It's whatever ego um, Greenson was working with. And it's basically the most adult part of the mind. The afflicted ego is the part that lives in the repetitions and lives in the transferences, lives in the adaptations that were made to the early emotional environment. It does not accept current reality. It doesn't recognize current reality. It lives within the logic of the repetitions. Now, the classical model is that the analyst forms an alliance with the reasonable ego, and together they try to bring the afflicted ego into line by helping it to recognize reality, the reality principle, that sort of thing. The the real movement in modern psychoanalytic thought, and, and certainly in my work, has been how do you engage the afflicted ego directly? How do you bring the illogical part of the mind that is within that's living within the logic of the past and engage with it in the present. So that goes to the whole root of not simply interpreting, but rather relating on the basis of what the patient is experiencing in the transference. So that's where all of these emotional communications are directed to, to the afflicted ego directed toward ameliorating the experiences that the patient had in childhood, providing them with new experiences, and correcting previous pathogenic exchanges. Mm. And all of that is fundamentally different than making an observation about what went wrong. Exactly. That's the fundamental difference with, with interpretation. You know, there's a line somewhere in Ballant where he says, instead of providing a description of an object relation, we provide an object relation. So to put it in slightly clearer language, instead of providing an explanation for why somebody feels the way they do, we provide a relationship that will change the way they feel. No, Paul, there's so much in your book. I, I really can't say to the listeners enough. This, this really is a textbook on countertransference and it is rich. There's so much in it. We haven't even touched on half of it, but um, your examples are extremely evocative. I feel like it, it has helped me think about my patients uh, clinically in the clinical situation and outside of the clinical situation uh, very much. So I thank you so much uh, for this book and, and for talking to us today. Well, I feel very honored to hear all of that stuff, and it's very gratifying when, when you write and you're heard. You know? Yeah. And I can hear that you heard me. Yeah, no, this is fantastic. You've really, uh, you've, you've, you've made it a, an emotional communication to me through your book. So, well, thank you. <laughs> so, thank you thank for you. so much for writing your book, and thank you for speaking with us at New Books and Psychoanalysis. Okay, my pleasure, my pleasure, and my honor. 